Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Nicole, and in a moment we'll be reading the Bible together. But first, let's come before our wonderful God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together in your name, in the name of Jesus, calling ourselves Christians, part of the church, part of the body of Christ. And Lord, as we as a church gather and look into your word today, and as James opens it up for us, we pray that you would remind us what it is to be your servants, to minister to each other, to be the body, to be the hands and feet of Jesus to each other in our church family, to other churches, and into the world beyond. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, our reading today comes from the book of Acts. We're looking at chapter 20, verses 17 to 28. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood." All right. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good, good, good. Are you guys ready to talk about Presbyterianism? Yeah! All right. For those of you that are visiting, and it's like, man, these guys must really love themselves if they want to talk about themselves on a Sunday morning. Uh, the reason that we're doing this is because uh, back in Term 2, uh, we took a poll, and we got everyone to nominate possible topics for us to preach on in Term 4, and then we collated all them together, and then we had a big vote, uh, and this was one of the top nine responses that people wanted us to preach on, because apparently, despite the fact that we're a Presbyterian church, nobody here actually knows what that means. So we're going to dig into that uh, today. Uh, I've got one... One Presbyterian joke for us to start off with, because I don't know, I, I, I also was Googling, uh, just like Hannah was earlier. Uh, so Presbyterian walks into a coffee shop, uh, and he says to the guy, I'll have a long black. And the guy goes, um, sure, not a problem. What name should I put on? He says, I'll just put Presbyterian. And the guy goes, how do you spell that? He goes, S-U-P-E-R-I-O-R space T-H-E-O-L-O-G-Y. He's like, that doesn't spell Presbyterianism. And he looks back and says, trust me, it does. Uh, so... You can spell that later in your head if you watch the recording, if that's a, a trouble for you. Um, 
But this thing, this question of what do Presbyterians believe and what is it all about, it raises a whole bunch of different questions for us. Uh, one of the ones, of course, everybody always asks, is it true that the word Presbyterians is the only full anagram of Britney Spears? <laughs> that is entirely true. Uh, so I'm not sure in the Lord's sovereignty what he was doing when he came up with that one, but now you all know too, okay? Uh, some possibly more serious questions, and that actually did come uh, from the survey that we did of you guys. Uh, what do Presbyterians believe, and how does it differ from other denominations? Uh, and look, this is a, a massive topic, and I'm certainly not going to go into every single uh, different denomination and what they believe and all that sort of stuff. But it is an important question, because the truth is, is that we all sort of have different perspectives on where other people come from and all that sort of stuff. Uh, again, I was doing some more Googling. There's some funny memes out there. I tried to find one that wasn't taking too too many shots at too many people. Uh, and so this one, you can, uh, again, go to the recording later, uh, and I've deliberately not put on uh, too many specific donations. So Presbyterians are kind of this reformed camp here. Uh, and so apparently we're seeing, uh, here we are, this is us here, okay? So Catholics think that we are whiny little um, kids. Uh, liberals think that we're staunch, sort of argumentative people. We see ourselves as wonderful family uh, folk. Uh, evangelicals think we're kind of the crazy drunk uncles of Christianity. And charismatic thinks that we're like robots, just mechanical in all sorts of different ways. The more you look at this, it's incredible how well a job this guy has actually done in putting this stuff together. So I do encourage you to go back and have a look at it. So we'll talk a little bit about different denominations and uh, where Presbyterians sit on some of this uh, stuff. Uh, and also, we're going to uh, look briefly, okay, some of you might know this acronym TULIP, it often gets connected. We're going to look briefly at that, but I need to tell you about this now. One of the biggest distinctives about Presbyterianism typically is the doctrine of Calvinism, particularly uh, predestination. And as it turns out, not only did you guys vote in as a topic, what is Presbyterianism, but you also voted in what is or talked about predestination. So we're going to do that next week, all right? So that's a big one, and it is a, a, a distinctive, of, you know, that's pretty big, but we're going to give a whole sermon to that one next week. This week, all right, and again, I swear, I did not make this question up, okay? This was an actual question that came in, despite the fact that I couldn't have written it better for myself to talk about what I want to talk about. Could we have a history lesson on the development of the church, some of you just got real nervous, it was great. Uh, on the development of the church, and in particular, the different denominations we have today, how they split who are the key people in those movements? And let me tell you, the answer to this question, can you have it, is a resounding yes, all right? So we're going to do this now, just for a little bit, spend the first half of the sermon looking at some of the uh, opening, uh, the history, sort of how we got to where we are today, where the Presbyterian Church fits in all this sort of stuff. So I'll put up the big scary one that looks like a lot, and then we'll work through it bit by bit. Okay, uh, so we're going we're gonna to build our way up to this uh, just by, bre bre by breaking this down uh, bit by bit. So you, you, you can take a, a photo now, we'll come back to it a little bit later. So the church starts, okay, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection about 33 AD, and that word of God there in the middle, as we looked at in Can We Trust the Bible a few weeks ago, uh, it goes out to a whole bunch of different places over the first couple of centuries. It's going out in different languages. The Bible is starting to be translated into different people's native tongues and all that sort of stuff. And we talked about how that's one of the ways we know we can trust the Bible today because we've got the Bible uh, from the first few centuries in different languages and we compare those translations and have a really good uh, sense 
sense of what the Bible originally said, even though we don't have the original documents themselves. We've got a high degree of trustworthiness in the Bible. But the key thing is here, despite the fact the Bible's going out in different languages to different places, everyone still saw themselves as being part of the one church. But then slowly over time, uh, what happened was was there are different decisions and different discussions and different conferences that were had where people began to have different ideas about how the scripture was meant to be understood, and some of this stuff got formalized. So during the first couple of hundred years, there were lots of disagreements about how we should read the Bible and what the Bible was actually saying, and that's all okay. We'll talk about um, why that's actually not a bad thing a little bit later. But it was only in about the, the fifth century here with a couple of these conferences that a couple of churches actually said, no, we believe something so significantly different that we actually don't think that we can say that we are working together or that we're necessarily doing the same thing. And so everyone that agreed with these two uh, decisions, like the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon, these big doctrinal discussions and that sort of stuff, they sort of stayed on the straight. But we have the Oriental Orthodox and the Assyrian Church that are still around today. That's why I've listed them. Uh, They sort of break off and do their own thing. Lots of similarities, but some differences. Okay. Then the big, big split that most of you would have a little bit of awareness of is called the Great Schism. That happens there in 1054, where basically the... Pope in Rome, okay, says to the other big center of the church that's been uh, in uh, the, the, the kingdom um, of, of Babylon, basically where, where formerly Babylon was and that sort of stuff in, in Byzantine, and he says, uh, you are no longer a part of the church. They have a big disagreement, and basically they look at each other and they say, nope, we're, we're split. We're no, the, the guys in Constantinople and Byzantine, they're no longer going to listen to Rome. Rome's no, no longer going to treat these guys as part of the church, big split, and that's where we get Roman Catholicism start to have its, a little bit of its own identity as opposed to the Greek Orthodox Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. Okay, so that was the big split there. But the place where we start to come into the picture as Presbyterians is in the 16th century with something called the Protestant Reformation. And that is this time in the 16th century when a bunch of guys are looking at what's happening in the Catholic Church primarily, okay? And they say, uh, we think that you guys have gotten away from the Bible. We don't think that you guys are listening to the scriptures in the way that you should. You've made too much of popes. You've made too much of Mary. You've made too much of the Lord's Supper and you know, this whole idea that the, uh, the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus, all this sort of stuff. And they have these disagreements and these different movements start that form what we call Protestant churches. And so everything that I put in this red box as we go forward is part of this sort of Protestant movement more generally. And the reason it's called the Protestant church is because they're protesting against what the Catholic church had been doing. So Martin Luther is the guy that sort of kicks it off, hence Lutheranism there in Germany. Uh, We get Anglicanism through a sort of complicated thing of partly theological stuff, partly political stuff, uh, and that is how we end up with the Anglican church or the Church of England. And as we're going to see in just a moment, the Presbyterian church becomes the the church in Scotland. So each of these churches are attempting to reform the church. Each Each of these churches are defining themselves against Catholicism to some extent and you end up with these different national churches. Right? Now, there's lots more that we could list. We could talk about Dutch Reformed. We could talk about uh, you know, Zwingli and these other guys in the Moravian movement. There's all sorts of other stuff I'm not getting into, but this is the basic pattern that we see here. And then, over time, we see some more uh, branches break off from amongst those original 
reformers and those original Protestant churches. So you can see that the Methodists and Baptists both come from the Anglican church over time as they find different ways of doing things and begin to think a little bit differently about different things. And this just keeps going all the way through uh, until the, the 19th century where we get you know, where the Churches of Christ that some of you might be familiar with, that's what that traces back. Churches of Christ actually refers to a bunch of different denominations today. I'm trying to keep it simple. Uh, for those of you that know your history well, uh, you'll know that it is a, a complicated thing. But you can basically see how as we go along, these branches are breaking off and they're beginning to identify and really importantly, organize themselves in different ways. And normally what was happening was, was that the reason they split to start with was about a matter of doctrine that they thought was of fundamental importance, where they thought that somebody else was so wrong or the disagreement ran so deep that there's no possible way that we can actually work together. And what you find is, is that in each of these, the disagreement at the time was super intense then, but over time, Lots of us have sort of looked at each other and said, okay, it's a bit awkward now, but we were willing to kill each other back in the 16th century over this. Uh, now we recognize that we're all on the same team with regards to Team Jesus, uh, and we can poke fun at each other in gentle and friendly ways. Uh, and you can have a Presbyterian minister that became a Christian in a Pentecostal church who was then trained at an Anglican college after being an elder at a Baptist Reformed church. <laughs> so, you know, we're friends, all right? Um, I think, uh, Christy here, I misunderstood the, the message. You know, we want to make disciples of Jesus here, but Christy brought her dad, who's an Anglican minister, along to become converted to Presbyterianism today. Um, so we'll see how we go a bit later on. I'm looking forward to that chat, David. Uh, you know, but we're all friends. That's the important thing, all right? So we're talking about the Presbyterian church. We're talking a Protestant church that has its origins back in the 16th century, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that now. So this is our man, Calvin Klein. I mean, John Calvin, sorry. Uh, kids spoke up me mixed up there. Uh, so... John Calvin, all right? Uh, he is a, a super smart lawyer dude. He was nicknamed like the accusative case, which is like a grammatical term. So, you know, he was a fun guy to hang out with. Uh, he was in France, and he uh, essentially, as part of this big movement that was happening at the time, looks at the Catholic Church and says they've gotten away from the Bible. Calvin is really good at languages. He goes back, uh, starts to reread the Bible in its original form, and he's like, yeah, we've got to make some changes in the church. The French Catholics at the time don't really appreciate this, so he flees uh, to Geneva uh, in Switzerland, okay? And the, the same time, like I said, this is happening with Calvin in France and other places. In Scotland, there's a guy by the name of John Knox, and he's pretty keen to see reform happen in the church as well. And after making some moves himself, he says, I'm going to go hang with John Calvin in Geneva for a little bit. He gets the vibes there, and he's like, this is totally awesome. Let's be like Calvin in Geneva, reformed faith for Scotland. All right? So he goes back, and he's going to become the big-time leader of the Protestant movement in Scotland. Now, a little bit later, in England, okay? Uh, again, there's just so much that I could go into. So if you're a history nerd and you want to talk about it more later, please, please, please come and ask me about it. But let's jump in here. Uh, there was a dude by the name of Oliver Cromwell uh, who led a political and military movement in England to basically overthrow the Catholic king, Charles. Okay? Civil war in England, all right? The guys that were Protestant and who were not aligned with the king, win, Charles is executed, 
and Cromwell becomes Lord Protector, not King, but Lord Protector of England. And he's like, let's get this Reformation, Reformation really, really going. It had already been happening in various forms. We can go back and look at Henry and Mary and Edward and Elizabeth and all these great monarchs of England that were engaging the Reformation in different ways. But Cromwell is the one who says, we're going full tilt towards Reformation here in England. Okay? And Scotland, all right, they're like, yay, we'll help. Because we've been doing this for a little while. Also, we never really liked those English monarchs ruling over us anyway. So yeah, let's do this whole Reformation thing. So what happens is, uh, you get guys from England and Scotland and some from Ireland and that sort of stuff, and they get together in London at a place called Westminster. And they have this big assembly where they try and figure out what is this, this reformed church in England going to look like. We want to have a really clear statement of faith that, that outlines these are the key things that we believe. This is how we think the church should be organized. This is what we think salvation is all about. This is the doctrines that we want to teach about God and who he is. And these guys spend six years getting this document together. It actually takes them like two, three years, and then they bring it to Parliament, and Parliament's like, guys, this is really, really great work, but we want to see your workings. Could you go back and redo it, but with all the Bible verses there so we can make sure it comes from Scripture? That's like the, the English Parliament's like, can we get more Bible into this thing, guys? So they're like, they take it back, and they're like, okay, it's going to take a little while. They're like, that's fine. Just get it done. So they work on this, and finally, this is how we get with what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith. So they put this document together. Everybody's like, this is great. We've worked really hard on this. Lots of discussion. It's all really, really great. The only problem is, is that Cromwell dies. His son Richard is nowhere near as good a leader as he is. King Charles, so he, when he dies, King Charles II, who's been in hiding, King Charles I's son, he comes back on the picture and he's like, okay, now that Cromwell's dead, let's get back to how things are meant to be. Let's put a king back in place and let's go easy on this Reformation stuff. And so he basically says, thanks for all those six years of work, but we're not going to use this Westminster Confession of Faith. And Scotland's got eyes on this and they're like, well, actually, we think that's pretty good. Do you mind if we just take that document and make it the heart of the church in Scotland. So that's how we get, in Scotland, a document named after an English place, basically inspired by a French dude. So, you know, the Scots, really good about that. Just, you know, we're just sharing, you know, being friendly in all sorts of ways. Now, I've kept this simple uh, up to this point, uh, and I could get more complex. But I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I just want to let you, I want you guys to appreciate how tight I kept that, okay? Because the Scottish church then continued to have all sorts of, you know, disagreements and that sort of stuff within themselves. I, I don't want you guys thinking that we got here and all of a sudden the Scots just nailed it. Uh, they end up going through a whole bunch of different changes and find different ways to split and organize themselves as well, all right? But briefly, let me just, let me just tell you, how did it uh, get to be that all this stuff that happened back in the 16th century in Europe uh, came to be something that we actually uh, have affecting us here in Australia. And it's basically when the British Empire began to expand and people from the, from the British Empire began to come into Australia, depending on which country they came from, they brought their own faith with them. So 
Ireland was predominantly Catholic, the English people were Anglican, and the Scottish guys were Presbyterian, and so they all bring their churches along with them, and that's why we still have them here with us today. So even though Australia, new nation, very much connected back to all this stuff that was happening there, and these guys essentially brought those different ways of thinking about church with them when they actually came to settle here in Australia. Fun fact about the Presbyterians, though, uh, Scottish immigrants were typically not convicts. Most of the convicts that were sent here were actually English or Irish, and the Scots were typically middle-class, educated, and financially motivated to actually come to Australia. And that's actually worth noting, because we've talked here at Living Church about how our church is this sort of middle-class, Anglo place, and while we are welcoming in people from different nations, and we want to see this place become more and more multicultural, it's important for us to recognize that some of that stuff in the background has affected us for a long, long time. And so, you know, I make jokes about uh, Presbyterians thinking that they have superior theology and all this sort of stuff. You can trace some of this stuff back to the fact that Presbyterians, for the most part, were educated, middle class, and those sorts of values have sort of come through with us in church. And that's actually really important for us to understand because the gospel and the way that we apply the scripture to our lives, even when we have this historical background and this historic faith, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's influenced by our history. And so when we think again about how we want to live today in 20th century contemporary Australia, and if we want to make changes or we want to rethink how we do things, some of the reason why we have difficulty doing that at times is because this stuff runs deep. And so... That's not necessarily bad. I'm really glad that we've got this rich sort of theological and church history that we can lean into and learn from. But it's also good to recognize that it does shape us and the culture around us. And some of the things, especially if you've grown up always in a Presbyterian church, that you think, oh, that's just how church is, might be built upon values that have sort of come along more from history and politics than theology. And that's worth being aware of so that we can think well about the Bible now and think about how we then seek to contextualize it and apply it to us. Doesn't mean it's all wrong, but it's just something that we need to be aware of as we think about that. So, thus endeth the history lesson. You're welcome. Like I said, I have like 300 more slides. I'm ready to go. Just give me a chance. Uh, okay, so let's uh, now think a little bit more about some of these uh, denominational differences by thinking about some Presbyterian distinctives. But as we get into this, I just want to say really, really clearly that at Living Church, it's our mission to make Christ-like disciples in Southeast Brisbane and beyond. It's not our mission to make Presbyterians. Okay? We're talking about this partly on a Sunday, partly because you guys wanted us to. And like I said, it is important and it does affect us but also, I don't want there to be any confusion about in sharing this with you guys today that I'm actually trying to persuade you, if, the, if you differ from these things, to necessarily sign up or you know, say, yep, I'm, I'm a Presbyterian, that sort of stuff. You don't need to be a Presbyterian or subscribe to any of these doctrines to be a member here at Living Church. You need to be a believer in Jesus. You need to be baptized. You need to hold to the historic faith. When we disciple you, we don't disciple you in Presbyterianism. We disciple you in the cross and in Jesus crucified and resurrected. We're all about Jesus and what he's done. And while 
It is important to recognize some of this stuff and to recognize that we do have a, a background that we work within. And there's a reason that we're Presbyterian, particularly at the elders level, we actually have made promises and commitments that the Presbyterian church is the expression of how we understand the Bible. Even though that's true, our goal is not to convince you of all that as such. It will come through in our teaching, especially next week when we look at predestination and all that sort of stuff. But I just want you guys to know that this is not my sneaky way of trying to get you to sign up uh, on the blue line and start wearing tartan. Okay, that's, that's, that's not the goal. Um, but look, it wouldn't be a bad choice for some of you. It'd be a you know, great match your eyes. Anyway, all right. So, living church, and it does affect our life and ministry. All right, also just want to say really quick, uh, as we talk about distinctives and all that sort of thing, uh, the main thing probably that you need to know when it comes to the Protestant denomination, I'm not going to try and, I don't want to over, uh, I don't want to make too much of the distinction between some of these denominations, because what's key here is that as all these churches broke away, at least when it comes to their confessions of faith and their statements of belief, what the, the key issue is, is the Bible your ultimate authority? In lots of ways, it's how you treat the scriptures and how you think about the Bible that then determines where you land on all sorts of different other things. And while those churches that are all Protestant do have differences of opinion about what the Bible says, the reason they are often talking the same language is because all of them are looking to the scriptures to be their ultimate authority, whereas the Catholic Church is doing something a little bit different because they hold up church tradition and the teaching of the popes as basically equal with scripture. And so it's a different conversation that happens in those spaces. Eastern Orthodox is, is, again, different. They're much closer to us in terms of how they see the scripture, but they also have a much higher place for church tradition and that sort of thing. So just want to get that out there. I'm not trying to list every uh, distinction here, but there are two really big ones that we need to be aware of. And the first one, when it comes to Presbyterianism, uh, is elders. Because the word Presbyterian literally refers to how the church is governed. It comes from this Greek, uh, Greek word presbyteros, which means elder. So when we talk about the Presbyterian church, we're talking about the church of elders or eldership. And so that Bible reading uh, that we had before from Nicole, from Acts 20 there, it, it's unpacking this idea that when Presbyterians read the scriptures, when we see words like elders, overseers, shepherds, we think that that's all referring to the same group of people. That there's not a distinction between those different offices Okay, but rather, all of this speaks to eldership and the idea that the church is to be governed by a group of elders. So you notice there, in the scriptures, whenever it refers to elders, whenever Paul is talking, he doesn't just appoint an elder in a town or a place. He appoints elders. And so one of the distinctives of Presbyterianism is, is that while we respect that other denominations don't think that the Bible is particularly prescriptive on how to organize yourself in terms of leadership, Presbyterians take the view that, no, we, we think that there's something about this plurality of eldership that is the model that we've been given. Now, you can then organize that in various ways. That's cool. It's not overly prescriptive. But there is a basic idea here that the church is to be led by this group of people called elders. And... Classically, there's also been a bit of a distinction between there are elders who teach, who have a particular focus on teaching, and there are other elders that have this focus on what we call ruling or oversight and that sort of thing. So at our church, we'll talk about our elders in just a little bit, uh, a little bit more here in just a second, but I'm the uh, minister, which in 
different Presbyterian churches might be referred to as the teaching elder, and then the rest of our elders, uh, they, well, they do teach sometimes more of their responsibilities on oversight and that sort of idea. Now, if you want to look up this a lot more, uh, last year, uh, in the lead-up to nominating and electing some new elders at the start of this year, uh, I preached a whole sermon on this, so you can go back and look that one up on the YouTube channel if you want to see that one in detail, uh, and if you've got any questions about that, feel free to come and talk to me about it after. So basically, uh, this is from the Presbyterian Church of Australia just a couple of years back, uh, where they said, elders occupy a pastoral office to which belongs the spiritual oversight of the church under the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Elders shepherd and serve the church by sharing in its government, teaching the word of God, praying with and for God's people, and modeling life in Christ according to their gifts. So when we talk about elders and the role that they have here at church, it's governance, teaching, prayer, and modeling the life of Christ to the congregation. So, like I said before, while our church members don't need to be Presbyterian, Elders and ministers absolutely do, because that's sort of what makes us distinct in our teaching, as opposed to other churches, is that we have an agreed way of understanding the scriptures, and so we stick with that. Uh, It's also worth noting really briefly that a Presbyterian uh, is not the same thing as Episcopalian, or in in the Anglican tradition we talk about having bishops and that sort of stuff, that's the the kind of word behind that. So the the Presbyterian church does not have a bishop, there's no single person with that sort of power invested in them. It's always spread out amongst the plurality of elders. So a, a bishop uh, in the Anglican church, if that's your tradition, does a similar thing to what we do at what's called presbytery. So we've got our local church leadership, and then we have a regional leadership where a group of elders get together and form up that next sort of level, which we can talk about in just a second. So there's similar structures, but who actually has the authority and power in it is the real sort of difference that's there. Also worth noting, Presbyterian doesn't equal congregational. The church is not led by a simple congregational democracy. Some decisions, as we're going to talk about today at the congregational meeting, need to be ratified by the entire congregation, so budget, ministry appointments, those sorts of things. But the majority of decisions are made by the board, which is the elders and our councillors, which we'll talk about in a second, or at least under their oversight. Now, again, I'm covering a lot here. If you guys have more questions, you're more than welcome to ask uh, later on. Uh, But let me just introduce you to our elders here. Uh, So we've got myself, we've got John, Wade, Tim, and Mal, who are currently serving as elders. And alongside them, uh, we have our counselors, Sandra and Lorraine. Because even though we uphold this principle of male eldership, we also believe in men and women leading together at every level of church governance. And so they work together uh, as part of our board. And that's how we do that oversight function there. Again, uh, I didn't put the link up there, but we've got uh, some older sermons that speak about the whole uh, eldership issue and men and women and that sort of stuff. You're welcome to come and ask me more questions, but, um, and I can give you the links uh, later on if you like. And the way that we structure it here is, uh, while these guys serve as elders and as part of the board, we are big enough to where we have people who are full-time committed to ministry work in the week-to-week sense. So Andrea, Chris, Tom, Janet, Zoe, myself, we're all on staff. And we do the week-to-week work of ministering the gospel, but it's under the oversight of the elders. So in some smaller Presbyterian churches, the elders are much more hands-on and direct. And each of our elders are serving in ministry here in hands-on ways. But the actual work of the eldership is they're a little bit more hands-on. Here, when we talk about elders, we're talking about those who have oversight, big-picture stuff, and then we organize ourselves in various ways through growth groups and all sorts of stuff under that also. 
Really, really quickly, all right, uh, last thing on the, the governance side of things, because the Presbyterian Church uh, actually got itself together in here in Australia and organized itself at the same time that Australia became a nation at Federation in 1901, we basically copied what the civil government was doing at the same time. So we've got local government, we've got regional, state, and federal government. Uh, they've each got some different responsibilities and all that sort of stuff, uh, but that's how that works. And I think it's always really important that you guys should know that if you have a problem with anything that I'm doing when it comes to what I'm teaching or the way that I'm conducting myself, while it's totally appropriate to talk to the other elders and say, hey, I'm a little bit worried about James, you know, what's going on here? Ultimately, if you guys have got an issue, it's to the presbytery that you go because it's their job to actually be watching over me and my teaching and all that sort of stuff. And if you ever want to, again, have their contact details, just come and ask me. Um, and if you say, I can't really explain to you what it's about, I'll then get nervous. Um, but it's fine, I'll still give you the details and we'll figure it out uh, from there. All right, so that's on the government side of things. Then we've got uh, the theology, the Presbyterian distinctives when it comes to theology and this sort of stuff. Now, again, I think it's a good time just to address this question uh, really briefly. Uh, some of you, if you're visiting, if you're not normally in church, or maybe you are in church and, and you've sort of wondered about this, you might ask that question, you know, why can't all Christians just agree on theology? If everybody's agreed that the Bible's the ultimate authority, why, why can't we just make that work? I mean, and even Jesus there in, in John 17, he prays for unity for his people. Okay, so why are there so many denominations? Why can't we all get on the same page? And I think that's actually a really good question. Like, it makes sense to ask it. Right, but this is, the, this is my, my brief response to this question. So while all churches follow the historic sorry, while all churches who follow the historic faith agree on core doctrinal issues, so core teaching, right, the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, salvation through Christ alone, there are other secondary matters of doctrine that are disagreed upon, even amongst those who uphold the Bible as their ultimate authority. But the thing is, Christianity is not about a set of rules or even ways to live or even exhaustive doctrines that you must follow in a certain way to be saved. Christianity is about loving God and loving people through Christ and by His Spirit. While the Scriptures guide us in this, there is freedom to do things differently according to our conscience. So this thing, the Bible is crystal clear on everything that we need for salvation. It's crystal clear about who Jesus is. It's crystal clear about the significance of his death and resurrection. It's crystal clear that it's through faith in Christ alone that we are saved. But when it comes to all the things that we need to figure out through the centuries about how to live in different places and how to organize ourselves and how to structure ourselves and that sort of stuff, the Bible is not exhaustive in that sense. And so as we read it, it makes sense that even amongst those who are upholding the Scriptures, that at times we're going to look at it and say, well, I think that the way should we apply it is this, or I think that this scripture means this, and it might get to a point where we actually disagree. And what's really important is, is that at that point, if we think that the scripture says something and we disagree with somebody else, we, we need to the freedom to follow our conscience. That, that we would say that, that one of us, or maybe even both of us, might be wrong. But the important thing is in this point is not so much our behavior, but rather my conviction, am I following God and his word at this point? Because that's what I'm actually called to do. So it's not a bad thing for us to both follow our consciences and both encourage each other to keep following Jesus, even if we agree, because we disagree on, on how this works, maybe we can't actually work together on the day-to-day. -day. Now, the church has done this poorly at times through its history. Lots of divisions between genuine brothers and believers and sisters 
have resulted in death and bloodshed because what we did was we took these doctrinal issues and we made them something to go to war over as opposed to simply being able to say, listen, I, I believe you're following Jesus. We disagree on what the scriptures are saying here. So yeah, we can't work together, but we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not something the church has always done well. And it, does, and it means even today that when we come across somebody that we differ with doctrinally, the question we need to ask ourselves is, are they confessing faith in Christ? And what is the true nature of our disagreement here? And I also think that denominations are actually a gift that God has given to the church because they've been able to do different things in different places as the church is going out to tell people the gospel. Different denominations have succeeded in different places in different ways. And that's also not a bad thing. And so I think that God has used that diversity to continue to further his purposes also. So I don't think that denominations are a bad thing in and of themselves. And like I said, that's why, again, our job here is not to make Presbyterians. Our job is to make faithful followers of Christ. All right. Let me try and speed through this last uh, bit here to follow up, to finish up. So like I said, we've got the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the, the distinctive uh, document that explains what Presbyterians believe and how we understand the Scriptures. The Bible is the ultimate authority. The Westminster Confession of Faith explains how we understand what the Bible is saying about different things. Okay, Don't worry about that diagram. I'm not going to go into uh, all those details there. And like I said, lots of Protestant churches, there'll be overlap and similarity between them. Okay, uh, there, There's a couple of significant things, but... There's a reason why I could go to an Anglican college all right, and still learn many, many things uh, that basically lined up with Presbyterian stuff while being a, a student at a Presbyterian uh, church. And while the Presbyterians, in their wisdom, and rightly so, asked for me to do a year of particular Presbyterian history and doctrine at the end of my studies with the Anglicans, because there are real differences, they also recognized that, well, that stuff that you were learning there at this particular Anglican college was good and solid. And my joke now to my um, Sydney Anglican friends is you guys are so close to getting it right. Like, <laughs> just, just come a couple more steps this way and you guys will be there, all right? You're, you're, you're right, so close. Anyway, uh, but here's some of the, the key things you need to know about, okay? So, as opposed to uh, Baptists or Methodists or those that typically uh, come from uh, an Armenian perspective, if you don't know that word, that's okay, we'll talk about it next week. Uh, Presbyterians baptize both infants as a sign of their visible membership in the church of God, which has to be uh, confirmed by faith. But we also baptize those who come to faith uh, later in life. Uh, baptism is symbolic of entry into God's covenant people, like I just uh, said. We'll talk again a little bit about that next week as well. Um, for us, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, and it's the mystical presence of Christ with believers when they take the supper that's always sort of been emphasized, as opposed to that it's just remembering what Christ did or uh, thinking that the bread and wine actually become the body of Christ. That's a different thing. Also, a particular distinctive that you might hear occasionally, this is a little bit further in the background, I won't read that whole thing in full, but basically the regulative principle is the idea that everything that we do in church as part of our worship should be positively given to us in the Bible. So some say, well, if the Bible doesn't say anything against it, then we have the freedom to do it. Presbyterians and Reformed Church have typically said if we're going to do it in church, we need to see a positive example of it in Scripture. Some read this very, 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 very conservatively, and they're like, the only thing you can sing in church is Psalms, like the actual Psalms, okay? Whereas others are like, well, no, we think, you know, that we've, we've got the lyre, 
that had strings. Guitars have strings, so guitars are cool. Nice. You guys probably know where I'm at. Also, this is why if anyone says, the reason I don't raise my hands in church is because I'm Presbyterian, you are dead wrong, all right? I've got verse after verse of people in the Bible lifting up their hands and raising their voices in worship to God. I am so much more Presbyterian than you are, all right? So nobody, so if you don't want to raise your hands, that's fine, but nobody come out with me with, it's because I'm Presbyterian, because I will beat you, all right, with the scriptures on this one, all right? Sorry, hobby horse, deep breath. Okay, we're good, all right. Now, like I said, next week, uh, we're going to talk about Calvinism, predestination in full, but let me just really briefly uh, introduce this topic, and this is the last thing we do finish up with, and we're, just, we're going to do it briefly, all right? So TULIP is this acronym that was developed uh, sort of early 17th century uh, to outline the basics of Calvinism, and it was in response to this dude, Joseph Arminius, and his teachings, which we're going to look at later. Fun fact, that's Calvin's son-in-law. So a son-in-law writes a doctrinal statement, and dad's like, uh, no. Uh, actually, Calvin, it wasn't Calvin, but the, Cal- the guys that follow Calvin, uh, they're like, no, nah, we need to work on this. And they come up with these statements that wonderfully form this acronym TULIP. So I'll briefly, just with one sentence, explain each of them, and we'll talk about it a lot more next week. So, total depravity is the idea that sinfulness affects and taints all areas of life and human existence. So salvation is therefore the work of God alone. We've got no power to save ourselves. All right? Unless God works in us first, we cannot be saved. That's the, that's the big takeaway there. Uh, so Romans there, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. You could not live a righteous life, and you would not want to in your sinful state. Second one is unconditional election. This is the idea that God chooses who he will save based on his kindness and sovereign will alone. It's not because of personal merit or character. You haven't done anything uh, to earn your salvation. There's nothing special about you that's meant that you've been saved. It's entirely God's providential choice. Uh, From Scripture, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Again, we'll talk about this more next week. I'm not trying to prove it to you. I'm just showing you where it comes from. Third one is limited atonement. This is the idea that Jesus Christ died only for the sins of the elect. Those that hold to this would say, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That suggests that he didn't give it for all. But for me, I'm kind of a four and a half pointer on this because I've also got this verse in the Bible that says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The whole world, if you want to come at me and talk about this later, I look forward to it. Uh, all right. Irresistible grace is the idea that God brings his elect to salvation through an internal call, which they are powerless to resist. All right. The Holy Spirit supplies grace to them until they repent and, so, and are born again. It's basically, if God wants to save you, he's going to save you. It's that idea. Uh, I won't read the whole thing there, but that's the idea of where that, that comes from there. And then finally, perseverance of the saints. The elect cannot lose their salvation. Because salvation is the work of God the Father, Jesus Christ the Savior, and the Holy Spirit, it cannot be thwarted. All right? And again, from Scripture there, uh, Jesus says that he will lose none from his hand. He will save all. Now, I just wanted to introduce that to you briefly this week to get your brain sort of thinking in that direction. We're going to spend a whole lot more time on that next week. Um, But basically, the too lazy, didn't listen uh, summary is this. Guys, I love you, but I know, I know. All right? Presbyterian 
Ism is a Protestant denomination whose roots go back to the 16th century, all right, particularly the work of John Calvin and John Knox. Uh, its biggest distinctives from most other Protestant churches is its governance by eldership. Uh, other distinctives that it shares with other Protestant denominations include its views on baptism, its views on the Lord's Supper, worship, that's the regulative principle, and the teaching on how God acts in saving the elect according to his sovereign will. And like I said, we'll talk much more about this next week. All right. I hope that was fun. I hope that you enjoyed it. It's a very different sort of topic for us to actually preach on and teach on and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and like I said, guys, if there's any doubt, all right, it's, just, it's all about Jesus. Uh, I've been very mindful as I've been putting this together. We're talking about a bunch of other stuff and history and people and all that sort of thing. And we've, we've always been some scripture in, but we haven't worked so hard on the scriptures this week, which is funny because we're all about the scriptures and what it teaches. Uh, but let me just assure you that at, while this stuff is important and it matters... It never takes the place of Christ in our heart or the scripture's guidance of us. And so let's pray for that now. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. Thank you, Father, for the gift of the salvation that comes through him and him alone. Thank you, Father, that while the church has organized itself in different ways and acted in accordance with its conscience over the centuries, that, Lord, we are still one people in Christ by the power of your spirit, that all who truly trust in Jesus are part of the one church, and we are so thankful for the salvation that are given to all who are in it. So Lord, please help us uh, to be mindful of the historical heritage that we have and where that comes from and help us to be wise in thinking about how that's been shaped and how we can continue to reevaluate and think about it today in light of the scriptures. But Lord, more than anything else, help us to continue to follow Jesus with all of our heart. Help us to be a place where we make mature disciples of Christ who become more and more like him by the power of your spirit and that we as a community continue to proclaim the name of Christ loud and clear so that more and more people might become brothers and sisters in Christ. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.